In the early pages of his book, When I Don't Desire God, John Piper writes about a startling and life-changing discovery he made as a young man. Here's how he explains it. Quote, When I saw the truth that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, I was freed from the unbiblical bondage of fear that it was wrong to pursue joy. What once had seemed like an inevitable but defective quest for the satisfaction of my soul now became not just permitted, but required. The glory of God was at stake. This was almost too good to be true that my quest for joy and my duty to glorify God were not in conflict. Indeed, they were one. Pursuing joy in God was a non-negotiable way of honoring God. It was essential. This was a liberating discovery. He goes on to say this, But simultaneous with the liberation came the devastation. I was free to pursue my fullest joy in God without guilt. Indeed, I was commanded to pursue it. Indifference to the pursuit of joy in God would be an indifference to the glory of God, and that is sin. Therefore, my quest took on a seriousness, an earnestness, a gravity that I never dreamed would be part of pursuing joy. And then, almost immediately, came the realization that my indwelling sin stands in the way of my full satisfaction in God. It opposes and perverts my pursuit of God. It opposes by making other things look more desirable than God. And it perverts by making me think I am pursuing joy in God when, in fact, I am in love with his gifts. End quote. This is so critical for understanding everything we're about here at Desiring God. So what happens when our hearts commanded to pursue their delight in God? What, what happens when our hearts feel dry and lack joy, and instead of turning to find joy in God, they turn to find joy in idols? How does the sin in our heart pervert our search for satisfaction in God? Or to put it even more personally, and more bluntly, and more devastatingly, what counterfeit joys do I unwittingly assume are joys in God? We talk about this today on the Authors on the Line podcast, and we welcome back Jonathan Edwards scholar Kyle Strobel, who is the author of a new book, Formed for the Glory of God, Learning from the Spiritual Practices of Jonathan Edwards. Kyle is not new to this podcast, and this time we welcome him back to talk about the spiritual disciplines and why we sometimes look for joy in all the wrong places. And I began by asking Kyle, in what ways was joy a spiritual discipline for Jonathan Edwards? Edwards, of course, didn't use the term discipline. Um, Edwards was much more comfortable with the term means of grace. Um, and that's, he wasn't comparing them, obviously, but that's just the Puritan context in which he worked. They call these things means of grace. And joy wasn't something you can directly seek after. And so joy wasn't something you sit and say, you know, I don't feel very joyful. How do I fix that? Um, and, of, and of course, the reason for this is because God's life is the infinite fountain of, of life, of joy, of delight. Right? And so you can't generate joy, but joy is something you can partake in only as you partake in God's life in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so for Edwards, you know, the, you know, if he was, if he was doing self-examination and, he, and he's realizing, you know, wow, I'm, I have, I have these kind of emotions going on. Maybe there's envy happening here. Maybe there's, um, anger, maybe pride, you know, all these things. The, the solution isn't to turn. I think, I think this is a really important point because there's such a great temptation in the Christian life. And, and I think it's the greatest temptation in the Christian life for, for people who have, for Christians who are solid Christians who are deeply trying to grow in their faith. I think the greatest temptation is to try to find God's benefits apart from Him. 
And so it's very easy to say, oh, well, like, let's look at the fruit of the spirit, right? Well, okay, I love joy, peace, peace. Okay, well, I'm going to try really hard to be joyful, really hard to be patient, or really hard. Um, but for Edwards, that's, those are fruits, and, and those fruits only are true of someone as they abide in, in the life of the one who is delightful, who is joyful, who is love. And so Edwards was, was giving himself to these means of grace, as ways to enter into the life of God, because ultimately it's only God's life and presence that are formative. Um, the disciplines themselves or the means of grace themselves aren't formative. And this is what's going to be, I think, a fundamental difference between a reform notion of sanctification um, versus um, one that might lean more Aristotelian. They might look the same even. So for instance, you know, if, you know the, the person who leans more like Aristotle is going to say, oh, well, you need to be patient. Well, maybe you should try fasting. And that might help you develop. You develop this habit of patience. You need to kind of enter into something that pushes against that. Now, a, a, a reformed person might say the same thing, but the whole purpose is entirely different. The purpose isn't to develop the habit that then generates patience within you, but to, develop, to kind of open up a channel to partake in the life of God. And so this means of grace is this way to open up relationally to who God is. And, you know, I think centralist is, is a misunderstanding of grace that we, that we find um, that I think is just ubiquitous in our church. Either grace is simply something superficial like God's niceness, or when it comes to the spiritual life, I think we make grace Red Bull. And so grace becomes the stuff that God divvies out to us that gives us energy to do what he wants us to do. And instead, what we see in Scripture is that grace is God's self-giving. And by giving himself, by sending the Son, and by giving the Spirit, by catching us up into the life of God, that life of delight, um, we are now formed into the image of, of, of God, into the image of Christ. And so, you know, what these, these means of grace were doing was not simply to kind of, you know, through our own self-willing form us, but to proclaim, without you, I could do nothing. And in the midst of that, to know dependence upon God, to know in our weakness his strength, to rest in the fact that it is finished, he has done it. And so that's what the, so, and I see, I see a lot of Aristotle happening in, in, in the spiritual formation conversations, in conversations about sanctification. Um, I, I hear a lot of advice about people kind of saying, you need to work really hard at doing these kinds of things and these kinds of things. I hear very little about the Spirit often. I hear very little about grace often. And when I do hear about grace, it, it is more often than not something like Red Bull. Whereas for Edwards, you know, grace is, is God's giving of the Spirit, because by giving the Spirit, by receiving the Spirit, you have communion with God in Christ to the Father. I mean, you know, this is Ephesians 2, 18 and 19. Um, how we, you know, in Christ, in salvation, we have access to the Father in the Son by the Spirit. So in receiving the Spirit, we are wrapped up in the life of the Son and therefore partake in His Sonship before the Father. We are caught up into the family. The Ephesians 2.19 says we are in the household of God. Yes, amen. And, and so joy then for Edwards, joy is a fruit of communion with God then? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so joy is a fruit of this communion. Um, and, you know, to be honest, like I think there'll be times, and, you know, the Reformed of this period, I'm thinking of um, Brockle here, for instance, uh, Wilhelm Brockle. I mean, they're going to make a lot of distinctions between, you know, so say, let's say someone's not feeling very joyful. Well, 
there, there's not any obvious answer to why that is. It, it's not necessarily that you're not enjoying communion with God. Because there's a difference between spiritual backsliding versus spiritual darkness versus spiritual death versus, you know, there's a lot of, and, and a lot of what these distinctions are is, okay, what, what do I do here? And I think for the people, I think this is a, another place where there's a lot of room for idolatry and a lot of places of temptation is when we assessing ourselves and we, we, we come to the conclusion like, I, I just don't, I, I don't feel joyful. I don't feel Maybe I'm just like, I'm looking at things going, you know, I'm just not excited about the Christian. I'm not excited about church. I'm not excited about the word. I'm not excited about. I think it's a great temptation for people to automatically assume it's something with them. Now, it might be. It might be sin. That, that's certainly a, a real, a real po- possibility. But I also want to remind people, like, look, if you're a Christian, it was in the midst of your sin that Christ died for you. And there's now no condemnation in him. And so this could be a wake-up call. That's certainly possible. Um, but you don't have power over God. It's not like you've chased him away. It could be that you, you've turned your own spiritual life into a kind of idolatry. And, and God has removed his kind of this joy from you, not to kind of give you the impression that he's not near to you, but to, to, to kind of reveal to you that there's idolatry in your heart, even around your, um, the, the, the spiritual activities you do. And I, and I think one easy way to figure out what this, what this idolatry is, is what is your natural temptation? And so do you think, well, I should, I should really go to a different church. I'm not, this church doesn't have enough for me anymore. Maybe if I went, or are you thinking about, you know, wow, you know what? I used to listen to that old worship CD and I used to really get, and it's like, what is actually, what is your natural response? Because in those responses that I just suggested, it's assuming excitement is, is kind of equal with God's presence. And of course, in Jesus's life and Paul's life, we found this is just not the case. And I think in our own context, excitement is one of the great idolatries. And so we need to be very aware of and, and very careful to, to not assume that felt kind of lack of joy or, or a lack of these things that these necessarily are, are issues to do. And of course, it all has to do with sin in some way, but this could be God calling us to himself in new kinds of ways in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our idolatry. And I think ultimately this is what's, you know, the, what's great about the means of grace is that the answer is always the same, no matter what it is, whether it's your sin or whether God is calling you to himself in deeper ways, the answer is open up to the truth of who you are and who he is. Um, this is how Calvin starts the Institutes, of course, right? It's, it's we need to open up to the fact that, that we are desperate and we find ourselves, no matter how holy we are or think we are, we always need to find ourselves at the foot of the cross where we have nothing to bring but ourselves, hearing the words it is finished. And, and that's where we're saved, but that's also where we're formed. And that's where the Christian life continually happens. And so whatever's going on, if I'm not feeling joyful, if I'm not feeling loving, if I'm not feeling these things, the, the, the first, I don't think it's a real issue to try to necessarily figure out why that is as much as turning to the Lord saying, well, what do you have for me here? And entering into the truth of yourself in light of grace, in light of who God is and how he has given himself to you. And trusting that if that's happening, that if I'm opening myself to him, if I'm kind of, and by opening myself, I'm talking with the means of grace here. I'm kind of opening these channels to the life of God by, 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 doing, by entering into the life he's called me to. That as I'm doing that, this is an abiding that, that will lead to joy.
even if I don't experience it now. God does what we do with children, and he allowed you to know his presence and to know his truth, and it was always equated with excitement. Everything was exciting when you're a young Christian. Then suddenly, but, but of course, God is trying to form you into someone who loves deeply. And he's, follow, and, he, and he's forming you into the person who walked the way of the cross. And whatever the cross is, exciting isn't one of them. And so the problem then becomes, as, as we are pulled into this life, and the Puritans talk about this, this spiritual darkness um, that can happen, as God, you know, you know, in the church we'll often say the desert, right? God calls us to the desert to know who he is. The problem is the desert isn't exciting. And so as infant Christians, as baby Christians, we often feel this kind of dryness. And the, the, the first thing we turn to is our idolatry. Some people will turn to self-loathing and will seek to atone for themselves. This will reveal that they have this kind of, this kind of false notion of salvation. They, they, they still believe that salvation rests on them. And they'll do all sorts of things to try to generate a, a way out of this. Um, maybe they, you know, to be honest, a lot of these people will go to seminary. And there's a lot of people in seminary who, who are trying to atone for their sins. Um, a lot of people will turn simply to excitement because they thought, well, you know, when I was a young Christian, I was really excited. I'm not excited now. And they think this is a problem. Instead of saying, what is the Lord calling me into? What does it mean to embrace who God is, even in the midst of the desert? They think, how do I get out of the desert as fast as I can? And so they go to a different church with, with, with a, you know, a bigger rock band or a more exciting, pre- or more programs or more, or they do something like this. You know, Edwards in his personal narrative talks about this. And actually every spiritual thinker in all of the tradition says the same thing that I've ever read, which is in and of itself amazing because rarely <laughs> does that happen, right? At the end of his life, Edwards, and again, everyone I've read says the same thing. At the end of his life, he was looking back and he was saying, I, I think I was a much better Christian when I was younger. And, and what he's reflecting on there is I think what we all feel is I look back and I was so excited. I was so every, every Bible study was the most profound thing I'd ever heard. Right? Every worship song was, you know, I was, I was kind of on the edge of heaven, you know, and, um, but he goes, but now I, I, I kind of embrace and grasp the sovereignty of God in deeper ways. Now I know the holiness of God. But now he says, I, I experience more of my sin. And I was like, it's so interesting. So Edwards, towards the end of his life, is saying, I'm more of a sinner, at least in my own experience, than I was as a young Christian. And again, I think the temptation here is if we start looking at the Christian life through worldly terms, we'll, we'll, we'll interpret holiness as actually becoming less holy, <laughs> ironically enough. And for Edwards, is at the end of his life, he's saying, but I am now more dependent on the grace of God than ever. And I think that we have to understand that this is the progression of holiness and, and the ubiquity of this. I mean, throughout all, again, across all the traditions, I see the same thing as well. You have these mature Christians, spiritual writers saying, I was, you know, I feel like I was a Christian decades ago. I'm so overwhelmed with my sin now. I'm so cast, I, I just have to cast myself on God and God alone. And I think in our culture, particularly the American culture, that, um, in, in the culture in North America, is we have this notion that, no, I embrace the gospel. And it's, again, it's like Red Bull, right? And it gives you wings. And so 
I'm going to kind of dominate this Christian thing. And eventually God has to say, no, 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 I'm not going to allow this to work anymore because this thing that you're embracing that you call Christianity is actually antithetical to holiness. It's actually antithetical to my work of sanctification within you. And so he got us to deconstruct these kind of structures that we've created that we think, oh, no, this is what it looks like, God. It's going to look like this. You know, I'll do this and, you know, everyone will love me and I'll get better. I'll be more excited and happier and all the, you know, the American dream. And we, we kind of try to merge that American dream in with holiness. And a lot of, uh, most of what I think happens in the Christian life, and again, we see this exactly in Edward's life, is that, you know, God ends up tearing this stuff down and you find yourself you know, how does Edwards, one of the most, you know, and it's certainly an American soil, arguably the, the most important theological figure, pastoral figure, you know, gets kicked out of his church. And it's like to, to put ourselves like to Edwards, you know, it's like you think about him, here's a guy, and they couldn't find a replacement, of course, so he's kicked out of his church and he's having to pulpit supply for himself. <laughs> it's like, but to think oh, about, man. yeah, I mean, it's just unbelievable to think about what that must have experientially been like. What is that like? And to think about how, what he was experiencing, what, is, what were Edward's prayers like during that time? But to trust that, okay, Lord, you know, there's, there's you know, you're leading me here on something that, that I, can't, I can't interpret as, um, oh, you know, I became a Christian, I take over church, everything goes well. You know, and, you know the, the revivals, they took off, but then Edward had to deal with the, the, the backlash of those things. And a lot of that was muddy and murky and dark. And, and so, I mean, I think we, if we don't have an ag- accurate depiction of how this, how this life of holiness looks, and, and traditionally, you know, we, we, we see these times of kind of the desert suffering, all these things that are wrapped up in it, we, we will always turn to idolatry to fix what, what God is doing. And, unfor- and what our idolatry will do is it will push against. God might be calling us out to the desert saying, come here, I want to I teach us. So similarly, right after Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit calls out to the desert, our response often is, what have I done wrong? I better, I better figure something else out. And so what we do is we reconstruct kind of a mini tower of Babels. We reconstruct these things in an attempt that we too can be like God, that we too can, can control this thing. And God is often doing something very different, I find. Yeah, powerful. So, so it's not excitement that sustains the Christian life. We cannot find a substitute for true joy in entertainment or by somehow short-circuiting the means of grace. But we are called to rejoice in the Lord daily, always, which includes rejoicing in the sorrows. And something John Piper wrote comes to mind at this point. He, he wrote, quote, The fight for joy in Christ is not a fight to soften the cushion of Western comforts. It's a fight for strength to live a life of self-sacrificing love. It is a fight to join Jesus on the Calvary road and stay there with him no matter what, end quote. So how does joy develop and find expression in the Christian life when we find ourselves in the desert when life is is painful? And this is one of the things that, that I think is so interesting. And I, I talk to my students about this quite often because I think as Americans particularly, this is what's hard for us is when oftentimes when we, when we talk about the kingdom of God, like Jesus' expression of the kingdom of God, what, what Paul will refer to as being in Christ. You know, we, we talk about the upside-down kingdom, and I, I think, and, and usually what that refers to is when Jesus says things like the last will be first and the first will be last. Um, Jesus, you know, when, when he, you know, Paul in some, 2 Corinthians 12, after his long depiction of sufferings, you know, is, is crying out to God to take this thorn out of his flesh, whatever, whatever the thorn is. 
And God says, yeah, no, you know, my, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, my worry is, um, I think a lot of us read that, and I think we've developed a category we kind of call weird things Jesus says. And we kind of, and, and subconsciously we have this category of, oh, you know, Jesus just loved kind of saying paradoxical things. They don't mean anything. Um, and then we go on and we say, but he also says, I came to give you abundant life. And of course, we know what abundance means, right? It doesn't mean weakness. <laughs> it certainly doesn't mean being last, right? And I think when we see this, you know, we see this embrace of our weakness, embrace of being last, embracing the kind of upside down nature of the kingdom. What we find is what we are called to is utter dependence upon God. And it's in our dependence upon God that we find real joy. And, and I think I, I think one of the one of the most difficult parts of being an American Christian is trusting that Jesus is right about that, and that our culture is selling us something that ultimately isn't isn't a valid way to be joyful, and actually is the very thing that destroys joy. Um, and the, our temptation will be to create another kind of religion, a syncretistic religion with Christianity, where we try to merge some of Jesus's sayings together with the American dream. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, I mean, this is the prosperity gospel, essentially. That's right, and I think you know the you know we have you know we talk a lot about the prosperity gospel as a financial one, but I also think there's something called the spirit prosperity gospel, where spirit prosperity is stuff like excitement. And, and we promise people the Christian life will look a certain kind of way. And yet, you know, I think if we look at, if we look at the figures in our life who, and, not, and by in our life, I mean our tradition probably, people who are not passed away. I mean, I think of Bunyan, for instance. I think of Edwards. And the suffering they undertook. Right. The, the, that, you know, Bunyan's imprisonment. Um, Edwards, in many ways, out, outcast from his church, find himself, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere with, with enemies in his camp, family members who are enemies against him, um, even with the revivals. And, you know, Edwards linked himself to the revivals, and there was all this excess going on. And he just got lambasted for this. And, and you think, you know, there's these, the people who we turn to. It's like, wow, these, these are the people who are, who are holy. We're often the very people who are most rejected. And Jesus, of course, and Paul, and you know, <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on, right? And so I, I think we need to, to, we always need to read joy through the lens of the cross, in a sense. There, there is real joy here, and there is real, real depth of peace here, but we, 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 we cannot generate it. We can only receive it once we um, find ourselves attached to the one who walked the way of the cross. And until we see that, I think we will always and inevitably be constrained to these kind of systems of power that are contrary to the to the way of weakness. And I, I think this is a great danger. We feel, I mean, this is why you hear African Christians and Chinese Christians look at the West and say, I don't know what it would look like to be a Christian there. Because what the only kind of joy and peace that they know is, is, is independence and utter dependence. Because they, they, whatever they know to be true, it's certainly that we can't control reality and that we're safe. But in the West, of course, we, we think we can control reality because, you know, by and large, we can. You know, if, if, if we get the right degree, we can get the right job, we can get the right house. You know, we, we have this sense and, and we're safe by and large. And 
And of course, all of that is a mirage, you know, in the grand scheme of things. But because that's our context, we're, we're going to be so tempted to bring that into our spiritual lives. Yeah, and tem- tempted to bring expectations of excitement into the Christian life as a substitute for true joy in God. And speaking of this, I, w- I want to ask you about the spiritual distractions uh, that we face. We're surrounded by digital distractions in this life, and they can impede our spiritual formation in so many different ways. And knowing Edwards like you do, what distractions that we face in our modern lives do you think would most concern Edwards today? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's, I, I mean, it's a hard one, not in the sense that there's not a lot to say, because <laughs> Edwards would be horrified. But, you know, there's a, let me share a story first with Edwards, because I think, you know, one, there's one of the problems that a lot of people have with Edwards who are not all that familiar with him. And that's, you know, one of the, one of the things that I found really fun about um, hearing from readers of, of my book is that they're shocked about a lot of the stuff in the book about Edwards. Um, how pastoral he was, how spiritually sensitive he was, how thought, you know, and I think we get this picture of Edwards as the academic and he's holed up in his office and he, you know, but there's this, um, uh, an Edwards scholar, a friend of mine w- found a diary entry from a, a pastor who knew Edwards and he wrote about the day he went to visit Mr. Edwards and he said they had a meeting set up. So he said, I went to his house and he, he, he met me at the door and he said, let's, let's, let's leave. And so they got on horseback. They rode out to the countryside. They got off. They, they hiked up a hill. And they had a picnic together and chatted. And, you know, I, I mean, I think in Edwards' context, you think of the silence that nature, that, that was at his doorstep. Again, to be able to walk outside and literally just, and, and, and of course, Edwards tells us how much he loved to just kind of leave the, the chaos of the world. He, he wrote to his children quite often about this, um, leave how bombastic the world is. He said, leave it behind and enter into tranquility. Um, for him, I think the big one would be we have lost our silence and we've lost our ability to be, to be alone, to have solitude. And I think he would look at the internet. I think he would look at um, social media you know, I'll be in people's houses sometimes and I can hear multiple TVs on at the same time. I will, I know people who don't even sleep in silence, but will have like the, a stereo on or something. Um, and when we're driving, we're in noise. When we're, we're, we're I'm almost, I mean, I just think in my own life, I'm so rarely able to just take a stroll in nature. I mean, I live in a city and it's Phoenix too, so it's a million and a half degrees. <laughs> I don't want to be outside, but you know, I mean, it's, you know, but the, I, I remember, I know the times when I do, the times when I get outside and just, I can feel my, it almost feels like my soul is able to breathe. Um, I had a friend who went, he actually was driving out here from Southern California, and he said he was, as he's driving, he felt different at one point, and he tried to figure out, well, why do I feel different? And he said, it was like my soul relaxed, and I realized there, were, there wasn't signs everywhere. And he's even just think about, like, and we don't even notice this stuff anymore, but when you're driving in the road, how many signs are we reading? How much information is being we're, we're bombarded? I mean, you think most most of the people Edwards knew, you know, you you probably meet a hundred people your entire life, right? You're probably not doing a lot of training. Maybe you go town to town a bit, but by and large, you're you know you're you're very tight knit community. You're aware of other people's needs. You had time for other people. Your pastor was always willing to come to your house and sit down and help you navigate your heart. I mean, how many of us know that? Right? I mean, so I mean, there's in our culture, I think that our inability to be present to ourselves and others would have horrified Edwards. 
And when I, when I talk about, um, in the book, when I talk about conferencing, which I, more and more, I think this was the, this was the practice that really held their entire society together. To, to make it work, there's two major things you have to have to make conferencing work. You have to have a high biblical IQ, and you also have to have a high kind of um, relational IQ, we might put it, which means you have to know your own heart, and you have to be able to have navigated your own heart, and you have to be able to navigate the heart of someone else, which means you have to be able to be present with someone. And I'm just wondering in our day and age how many of us even have the capacity to be present to ourselves, let alone someone else. Yeah. Oh, that's good food for thought. And as we close, I want to press into this point a little bit more because it's important and we need it. And I specifically need it. Uh, give us a brief definition of conferencing in the 18th century. What did this look, look like uh, in the church community and in the home? Well, conferencing would be somewhat like a, a combination of an accountability group and a small group kind of relationship. It was usually a one-on-one relationship that would have been it would have been done in pastoral care. So your pastor would have led you in conferencing. You would have had someone you conference with during the week, and every husband and father would lead their family in conferencing probably on Sunday. And basically, you're if you build it off the sermon, which it often was, you would turn to someone. If you and I were conferencing, I'd say, Tony, you know, tell me about the sermon. Was the pastor right? And this is why it takes a high biblical IQ, because <laughs> now you're, you're and, and think about it, I mean, pedagogically, it means if you're sitting there listening to a sermon, you know, sometime this week, someone's going to make me give an account of this. And that's changing how you're listening. Right? It also means you're thinking about how, you know, not just this passage, but all of the Bible, does, the, the, does what the pastor say cohere with what I know to be true. And so you're searching the scriptures, you're analyzing things, you're talking about them. But then there's a deeper question, another question that, that, is, that is after that, which is, how did your heart respond to this? And so now there's this deep honesty of, you know, my heart rejects this. You know, my, I don't, I don't want to hear Jesus say this. Or I don't, and so there's this deep reality of what is actually going on within your heart. Now think about being raised in a home with a dad and I'm, I'm, I have young children. And so we haven't quite started this because we're a little too young, but I think about this. How am I going to help my little girl and my little boy navigate the truth of themselves in the midst of grace where they don't need to try to atone for themselves. And I need to, I need to watch as they try like Adam and Eve to cover and hide from God. And I need to undo that so that they can stand in the truth of themselves before God and in a sense, allow God to clothe them with his grace and righteousness. And, and but this is what society was. This is what you would have had. You would have had this relationship in your family. You'd have this pastoral relationship. You'd have this relationship with friends. And it's an incredibly rich, deep time of, of deep biblical analysis. It took a certain amount of theological acumen because, of course, these sermons are deeply theological. But it has this really deep personal spiritual reality to them. Hmm. That's some incredible parenting advice, by the way, helping our children out of the shadows and from hiding from God is a profound way to talk about self-discovery in the life of our children. But but we must end. Uh, here's one final question, and I'll let you go. I imagine this conferencing that you just described and explained can in no way be replicated over social media. Oh, there's no way. There's no way. I mean, you. It, this is a one-on-one, present, attentive. You have to have the art of listening. And attending, you have to, I mean, this is, 
this takes training. And I think it does start with our fathers and, and mothers in the home um, as children of, of a training and a creating an ethos in our, in our house. I mean, my, we don't have TV in my house. Part of why is for this very reason is I want my children to be able to attend to themselves and others in a real way. And I think there's technologies. And of course, books are technology too. So we can't just bash technology, right? But there's the kind of modern um, electronic technologies we have today often destroy our ability to be alone and to be with others. And that, I think, for Edwards is death. That was theologian and Jonathan Edwards scholar Kyle Strobel from his office in Phoenix, Arizona, with a very sobering thought to end on. And Kyle's new book is titled Formed for the Glory of God, Learning from the Spiritual Practices of Jonathan Edwards and published by IVP. Here at Desiring God, we believe that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, which means our pursuit of joy in God is a duty. It's a command, as you heard at the beginning of this episode in that quote from John Piper's book, which is titled When I Don't Desire God. That's a book you can get free of charge at DesiringGod.org. You can go to the website and click on books and you'll find it. And thank you for listening to this 30th episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. As always, this free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. It happens because we have generous financial donors like you. So thank you. If you'd like to join us and financially support the work of Desiring God, please go to DesiringGod.org and click on the top of the page where it says Donate. To find a full archive of the other 29 episodes we've released, you can search for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening to the Authors on the Line podcast.